Crossing family, it is so good to see you. I want to welcome those of you joining from 48th Street, those of you in Macomb, Kirksville, 929, Pike County, Hannibal, Lima, Mount Sterling, Keokuk, Monmouth, Jacksonville. I also want to welcome those of you who are joining us online, those of you who are part of the Crossing Inside. I am just so incredibly thankful to be a part of this church with you. I am excited to announce that we have set an all-time camper record for The Crossing. We have 1,276 kids going to camp so far this year. Unbelievable. We have seven summer camps. Two are completed, one is presently underway. And um, for those of you who signed your kids up, God bless you, thank you for making a spiritual investment in their spiritual future. There is a 100% chance that your kid is gonna need to have a relationship with Jesus. So while you do your sports camps and you're teaching them how to throw a ball, catch a ball, dodge a ball, make sure you're uh, giving them good opportunity to grow spiritually. Second thing, those of you who created, uh, or who were generous and created room in your lives to uh, create scholarships for other kids to go. Thank you so much for joining Jennifer and I in that and we are taking more kids to camp because of you. So God bless you. Um, I also wanna welcome those of you who are joining us for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time. We are so incredibly glad that you are here. And if you get bored in my sermon, which has been known to happen from time to time, don't completely check out. Take advantage of the uh, QR code in front of you. That way you can be on your phone, but not look like you're doing something you're not supposed to do. You know what I mean? Like, well, Clayton told me, and that's why I'm on my phone. And you can click on that link in the chair right in front of you, and it'll give you an opportunity to learn more about our church and connect to our church. But this summer, here at The Crossing, we are going through the book of Romans, and today we are in chapter two. And if you are, uh, want to get the most out of this series, I want to encourage you to grab one of these companion books. There's an incredible team here at our church who put these things together. They are still available in the lobbies of all of our different locations. And, I, um, and what you do is you just spend a little bit of time every day. This is mine. I wrote my name in it so that way nobody else can have it. And you just uh, you spend a little bit of time. You write yourself a little prayer at the end or write yourself a little note. And you just go through it. And then on page 9 or page 16, if you have one of these, there's a spot for you to take notes in the sermon, which mine is blank. I haven't listened to the sermon yet, but um, I'll fill it up when I listen to it, okay? But what this will help you do is this will help you kind of bookend uh, your time in the Lord, and I wanna encourage you to find someone to do this with, where once a week you circle up for you know five or 10 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, and spend some time talking like, hey, what did God teach you? And what did God teach you? And how can I pray for you? And how can you pray for me? Husbands, I really wanna encourage you to do this with your wives, uh, but everybody could find somebody to go on this journey with them. Now, before we jump all the way into Romans 2, I wanna do a little bit of recap from last week because as some of you are studying the Bible for the very first time, there's gonna be some tools you're gonna need in your tool belt to help you understand how to read the Bible and get the most out of the Bible. And the first thing we learned is aim. What is the aim of the text, which is the author's intended meaning? When God, through the, through the Holy Spirit, inspired men to write God's words so that way you and I could know more about God, there was one intended meaning. Scripture can never mean what it was never intended to mean. 
And so if we don't work hard to figure out what the author's intended meaning is, you could grab a hold of a promise that isn't really a promise, like God never said that. And then when things go south in your life and you're like, well, I cling to this promise, God's like, well, I didn't make you that promise. I made you a different promise. And so we wanna learn the author's intended meaning, which is why when you're studying the Bible, we don't ask the question, what does that mean to you? Because the to you is irrelevant. What does it mean? And then how do I apply it? So there's one meaning, but lots of applications. And one of the best ways to do that is to remember this phrase, context is king. How many of you have ever been taken out of context? Someone said something, took something that you said out of context. Yeah, she's ugly. What? Why did you say that? I'm talking about my yard. Good grief, my yard is ugly, okay? If you take something out of context, people get their feelings hurt. God gets frustrated when we take his words out of context. And every verse, every word that you see in scripture, it falls in the context of a sentence, a paragraph, a chapter, a book, or the Old and New Testament. And that context will help you understand scripture more clearly. Then, what I wanna do is I wanna talk to you guys about a couple questions you can ask when you're reading scripture. We talked about these last week. What is the important idea of the chapter? If you get done, like how do I bookend, how do I say this in a clear, concise way? Husbands, have your, has your wife ever told you a really, really long story? And all you, at the end of it, you're just like, so what were you trying to tell me? She's like, I need you to pick up the kids from school, right? That's what this is. After you read the scripture, what is, this, what is this chunk of scripture in a sentence? This will help you frame it. What is the verse I would most like to memorize? It is good for us to be people who memorize God's word because we don't wanna have our hearts filled up with God's word so that way what's in our hearts eventually makes it out, into, or makes it out into our lives and to the lives of the people that we love. So the more of Jesus that we put in our heart, the more of Jesus we will distribute to the people around us. What is the most challenging idea? And when we talk about the challenging idea, there's like three different chunks, that, uh, three different areas where things get hard. One is it's hard to understand. I don't get it. That might be a great opportunity for you to grow as you try to you know, chase the rabbit hole and figure out, or go down the rabbit hole and figure out where it leads. Second thing, so the first one is, uh, it's hard to understand, I don't get it. The other one is, it's hard to hear, I don't like it. You're gonna have some of those things in scripture because God's perfect and he has a perfect expectation for you and for me. So there's gonna be things in there that aren't gonna agree with us because we still wrestle with our flesh. And then the other one is hard to apply. I don't know what to do with it or I don't wanna do with it what I think I'm supposed to do. So when you're reading scripture, you're gonna find something that's hard. Scripture should challenge you. If you read the Bible and you get done reading it and you go, man, I'm awesome. You might be doing it wrong, okay? <laughs> I'm just gonna tell you, all right? Uh, next one, what is the application to my life in a sentence? What should I do with this? Here's why. Because in God's economy, he loves it when his people are obedient. In fact, that's how you show God that you love him, is through obedience. Faith without works is dead. So if your faith does not cause you to do something in your life, it is not a meaningful faith. And I'm gonna show you why we gotta have that kind of faith. 
When God is talking, uh, looking at his people, what he wants is not just for you to be hearers of the word, Let's show up for church, listen to a sermon. He doesn't want you to just be listeners of the word, you know, put the Bible audio and just go for a walk in here, although that's great. What he really wants is he wants you to do something with the word, okay? Ladies, if your husband, if you called your husband and said, hey, I need you to put this uh, roast in the crock pot for tonight because everybody's coming over and I left it, I had to leave early for work and I need you to take care of it and you gave him all the instructions, then you told him to pull out the little seasoning stuff to put on the roast and read the back of the stuff. And when he gets done reading all that stuff and then just did his own thing, would you be frustrated or would you be like, I'm just so thankful for this man, right? Because you don't want him to go, yeah, I read it, honey. I read, every, I did, I, I listened to all the things you, no, I needed you to do what I asked you to do. If Jesus was like, Angry Italian grandma, that's what that was. Okay, last one, are there any promises of God to me? The reason why this is important is you are gonna go through storms. How many of you have been through a storm? When you go through storms, you are gonna need an anchor. You are gonna need something to like help you maintain your position so that way you don't get blown all over the place. And that is what the promises of God will mean to you, what they will become to you. That being said, I wanna give you one more tool today. The best tool to interpret scripture is, anybody wanna take a guess? Scripture. We have some people who grew up at another church here today. I'm so glad you guys are here, okay? Did I spell that right? Scripture. The best tool to interpret scripture is scripture. God is consistent, he's unchanging. So God doesn't say one thing over here and a completely different thing over here. Anytime you think that there is an apparent contradiction in scripture, that's all it is, an apparent contradiction. There's something more meaningful beneath the surface that we can dig out. Now, since scripture does not contradict itself, since God is unchanging, when we bump into things in scripture, which we're gonna do this in just a little bit, you're gonna go, ooh, how am I supposed to put all of these things together? That work helps grows, grow us as Christians. You will never grow in any area of your life unless you embrace some of the difficulty associated with that. So sometimes when you bump into something in scripture, it's an opportunity to grow. That being said, I wanna recap quickly what we learned last week. Last week, Romans chapter one, verses 16 through 17, those were like the key verses that I wanted us to maybe even memorize. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to, everybody say this word, everyone who believes. There is nobody that you will meet that does not have the capacity to believe. There is nobody that you will ever meet that God did not send his son to die on the cross for that God loves, wants to bring into a relationship with him through everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. That means we add nothing to it. It's from faith to faith. You and I aren't the ones who get this work done. This is something that Jesus did on our behalf. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The key takeaway was that God can be trusted because of his gospel has the power to save absolutely everyone. God can be trusted because he has done this marvelous work on our behalf. And this gospel makes you and I righteous. And our part, is to take hold of it. And we take hold of this righteousness through faith. 
And faith that is alive and active is obedient to God. So we don't do the right things in order to be in a right relationship with God. It is because we are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ that we do these things that God calls us to. Now, in Romans chapter one, Paul is outlining how much the Gentiles have sinned. Now, this is where it sometimes gets confusing because some of you, you've been to church your whole life and you're like, we get it. And then there's some of you who are brand new and let me just take a couple seconds to kind of explain the complexity of uh, Jews and Gentiles. A Gentile is anyone who is not Jewish. So I would be a Gentile. It is anybody who is not a Jewish person. Now in the Old Testament, to call somebody a Jew was not just a national proclamation, it was also a religious proclamation. So here in America, uh, we kind of divide these two things out. We are an American, which is our national uh, attribution, and then we are Christians, which is our religious affiliation. But in Jesus' time, uh, leading up to the time of Jesus, before the gospel was proclaimed, before Jesus died on the cross, all that stuff, to be a Jew was to have a religious affiliation to Yahweh, God, and to be a, they had their own border, they had their own kingdom. In fact, the Jewish people were being ruled by Gentile Romans in um, Israel at the time. Jesus was actually killed by Romans at the suggestion of Jewish leaders. Now, when the gospel starts being preached, Jewish people, both religiously and nationally, are coming to faith in Jesus. So they are becoming Jews nationally, and they are Christians religiously. Everybody track with me so far? This is like the complicated part of the sermon. If we get through this, you guys might be like, Clayton, we get it. I don't know why you keep talking slow, all right? But the reason why this is important is because in Rome, you have Roman Christians who are Gentiles, and you have Jewish Christians that are in the same church and they are trying to get along. There's disunity there. There's challenges there. Uh, One commentator says that the best way to understand Romans is to read it backwards. What he's trying to do is he's trying to get Roman Christians, by the time we get to Romans 16, this will make sense. He's trying to get Roman Christians and Jewish Christians to stop being so divisive so that they can occupy the same church and make a difference in Rome. So while the Jews would be listening to Romans chapter one, they are perhaps getting a little proud. Because if you remember Romans chapter one last week, you'd be like, wow, Paul is coming after them. The Jews and the Romans are having a hard time getting along, and it appears that Paul is taking the side of the Jews. Uh, Those of you who have multiple kids in the house, have you ever, like, the kids have been arguing and then you start to weigh in and one kid seems to think that you're on their side and the arrogance that pops up? See, I told you, see, he's been like that for a long time. You know this. And you're like, no, 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 I'm just picking on you right now. I'm gonna pick on you in a second. Here's what's happening. The Jews are listening to Romans chapter one and they're going, yeah, get them. These Roman Christians are difficult. And then Paul's kind of like, hold my Eucharist because I'm coming after, I'm coming after you guys. So, uh, and this is, might go without saying, but when you're reading the Bible, uh, the chapters and the, uh, the, the numbers for the verses, that was not ordained by God. 
Those were things that man put in there just that way you could reference the scripture easy. Jesus wasn't going, all right, now we're gonna call this one John 3.16. That's not, that's not how it worked. Somebody was like, okay, 15, 16, oh, 16's gonna be a keeper. A lot of tattoos dedicated there, okay? He's just, he's, they're just working through. So, um, that being said, in Romans chapter two, a big shift takes place. And I wanna give you a mini devotional here. Rarely when you read scripture, are we the good guy, the victim. Most of the time when you and I read scripture, we're the bad guys, we're the abusers. So please, as we're getting ready to read this, don't start doing to the Jews what the Jews were doing to the Gentiles. That being said, Romans chapter two, you therefore have no excuse all right, hold on a second. Uh, I'm gonna give you another little tip. Anytime you see the word therefore in scripture, you need to ask, your, therefore, right there, you need to ask what is the therefore, now you gotta make sure you do this right, therefore, right? You wanna make sure you spell it right. What is the therefore, therefore? Because that helps you understand context. So what happened right before this verse? Well, Romans chapter one, verse 32. So let's go to Romans 31, 32. For although they knew or know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, we're gonna circle back to this verse in a, or word in a second. Another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass, here it shows up again, judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? He is swinging away at them right out of the gate. And you might be tempted to go, oh yeah, those judgmental Jews, all right? In fact, it is part of the reading of this uh, chapter that has actually led to some oppressive state or oppressive moves towards Jewish people over history. Paul, at the very beginning, is confronting two major sins. Play it cool, I wasn't thinking of you when I wrote this, but I want you to see if you find yourself in one of these two evils. The first evil is when you know sin is bad, but continue to do those things and approve of those who do those things. And the second evil is when you judge people, okay? who sin, but you yourself do the same sin. Let me put this in a context that isn't you. You have a kid in your house, and you uh, have two little boys, and you tell them no iPads after bedtime. And they both know the rule. But sure enough, late at night, the younger one has his iPad, and the older one goes, you are so cool for having the iPad that you're not supposed to have after bedtime. That is an evil of knowing that what they are doing is wrong, but approving of those who do it. 
Now insert the sin that you know is wrong that you continue to approve of. Oh, that's okay. You do you. Whatever it is. Paul's saying that is an evil. But he's also saying there's a second evil. And the second evil is when you judge people who sin, but you yourself do the same sin. So now picture yourself at Hotel Hensel, and you live under our house, and we have a very, you know, keep your room clean. And wife walks up the stairs, and she goes into the oldest person's room, and she goes, you are a pig. This room is trashed. Your father and I work way too hard to make sure that you have nice stuff in the house and this is how you treat it. You need to clean your room. And when she goes back downstairs. And then while she's, you know, doing whatever she does, she hears the oldest kid walk over to the younger brother's room. And then she hears him yelling at the younger brother. Your room is trash. Mom and dad work so hard to take care of us and you don't even love them because you don't even take care of your room. And so then the wife starts to walk up the stairs and as she does, the oldest is coming out of the younger one's room and goes, his room's trash, kids these days. (laughs) The hypocrisy. Paul's going, hold on a second, when you judge people who sin, but you yourself are doing the same sin. Now this brings up a conversation about judging. Since Paul is accusing the Jewish Christian followers of judgment, let's see how we can apply the tools we learned earlier, context is king, and scripture to interpret scripture to navigate how do we as Christians solve the issue related to judgment, okay? Because how many of you uh, have heard Matthew chapter seven, verse one, do not judge or you too will be judged. How many of you have had that verse quoted to you by somebody who doesn't even go to church? It's like the most famous uh, verse of people who don't follow Jesus. Well, aren't you guys not supposed to judge or you two will be judged? And so you have this thrown at you all the stinking time. Well, let's unpack this. First thing we're gonna do is we're gonna look at it in context. Matthew chapter seven. Do not judge or you two will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You, everybody say this word, hypocrite, okay? First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The context here is not so much judgment, it's judgment out of context, not realizing that you've got some stuff that's screwed up in you too. In fact, the word hypocrite, this is in Matthew chapter uh, seven, in Matthew chapter six, the word hypocrite shows up in chapter six, verse two, chapter six, verse five, chapter six, verse 16. And at the end of this one, he still tells them to take the speck out of their brother's eye. So you're still making a judgment about the speck of dust in their eye, but you're only supposed to address it after you've done a serious evaluation of the sin in your own life. Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem with you making judgments. He has a problem with you making judgments without the context of your own sinful behavior. 
Deal with the glaring sin in your life and then deal with the smaller sins in somebody else. Now watch this, in the very same chapter, Jesus goes on to make this statement. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, this is a tongue twister, Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot bear bad a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by your fruit, you will recognize them. Well, Jesus, if I'm not supposed to judge, how could I ever possibly discern who is a false teacher? Jesus, if I'm not supposed to judge, how could I ever know whether or not this is good fruit or bad fruit? Jesus obviously doesn't have a problem with Christians making careful evaluations or stating the obvious or watching how someone behaves and making a judgment call based on it. Okay, I mean, if that was the case, how come Jesus says this? Quote Jesus back to somebody when someone says, well, Jesus says don't judge. I would go, well, actually. Anybody have a well, actually friend in their life? Like you say something, well, actually. Okay, you're not invited in over anymore, okay? So here's your well actually verse. This is, if you go and look at your Bible, you'll find this in red letters. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Well, actually, Jesus says I'm supposed to judge correctly, so you're trash, okay? Okay, now watch this. First Corinthians, this is Paul. Because someone might go, well, that was Jesus, but Paul's talking here. Okay, okay, okay. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. It appears that we are supposed to have, as Christians, a different posture with those who belong to Jesus than those who don't belong to Jesus. Perhaps Christians should hold each other to a higher standard and those who don't know Jesus to a lower standard. After all, if they don't believe in God, have the spirit of God, have the power of God, or have the direction of God, how could they possibly follow God? But those of us who have the spirit of God, have the power of God, have belief in God, it's reasonable that we should be able to hold ourselves to a higher standard. Galatians chapter six, verse one through two, look what it says. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Hold on a second, Jesus. If I'm not supposed to judge somebody, how could I ever know that they were in sin? Furthermore, if I can't judge whether or not they are in sin, how could I ever come alongside someone to restore them gently? In other words, it appears that scripture is saying something completely different than do not judge. What scripture is saying, to those of you who are Christians, pay attention here, and to those of you who are not Christians, okay, we just learned this, so give us some grace for screwing it up for however long, okay? One, it's saying don't judge hypocritically. It's saying don't judge superficially. It is saying have a higher standard for Christians and recognize that you've gotta have a lower standard for non-Christians. 
And use your judgment on fellow believers to come alongside of them and to help them out, not to snicker, judge, and gossip. That makes more sense. That's the character of Christ. With that in mind, let's go back to Paul's argument as he is pointing out to the Jews that while they are judging the Gentiles for their behavior, they are doing the same things. This is why this is important because Paul is teeing off on the, on the Jews here. He says, now if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve, uh, or, and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Here is the summary statement. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Here's what he's saying to the Jewish people. Your judgments are worthless. Your witness is worthless because there is no difference between you and those who do not know the Lord. Now let me ask you the confrontational question. As Christians, we have the gospel message, we have the power of God in our lives, we have his direction for how we're supposed to live. Let me ask you this question. Is God getting a bad reputation in our communities and in our world because there is very little to distinguish the Christian from the non-Christian? We get so frustrated at the world that we see out there and yet we don't spend nearly enough time figuring out how much of the world is in here. Is our divorce rate different? Is our charitable giving different? Is our level of service different? Care different? Gossip different? Grace different? It appears to me that our high horse is not all that high anymore. Which is what takes us, what I think, is to the key verse. Romans chapter four, verse two. There's a lot more in Romans two that you're gonna fall in love with, like God doesn't show favoritism, which is a big deal for people like me. But look at this, Romans chapter two, verse four. This is one you could memorize. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? There are some of us who we are frustrated at the kindness of God, the restraint of God, his enduring long suffering. And instead, we wanna see God set things right. We're just mad at God's kindness. You're going through a bad divorce and your husband's got a nice truck and you still got your hoopty minivan. You're like, God, how come I'm the one who's going to church and he never goes to church and he's the one who caused the divorce? How come he gets the nice shiny truck and I've got the hoopty minivan? God, would you just make his car break down on a rainy day and make him walk so I can splash him in with the puddle when I drive by? God, why are you so kind to him? Because God's kindness is intended to lead your busted up husband to repentance. That's why. God, how come I'm having to go through so many hardships and so many struggles? 
Why can't you just put everything right? Well, it's because holistically, God's kindness is designed, his forbearance, his patience is designed to lead people to repentance. God, how much longer am I going to suffer underneath a really bad boss? I know that all the things that he's doing aren't all right. And how come he just keeps to keep going on great vacations, taking tons of pictures, and here I am? It's because God's kindness. It is so easy for us to see the sin in other people. But sometimes it's really, really hard for us to see the sin in ourselves. And the very same kindness that God is pouring out on the people you can't stand, there are people that can't stand you. And God's kindness is designed to lead you to repentance. Others of you, you see God's kindness, his restraint, his long suffering as an excuse to keep on sinning. You did something dumb, nothing bad happened. I guess God didn't hate it all that much. Like we kind of have this lightning strike mentality that if we did something really bad, God would lightning strike. But since there was no lightning strike, like, oh, maybe God's okay with this. And so some of us, we keep on sinning because we never get caught. And don't assume that because you've never been caught that God doesn't care. He's holding back his judgment. He's holding back his wrath. So instead of having to pour it on you, you can come to repentance and he can pour his wrath out on Jesus on your behalf. Don't confuse his patience with permission. The purpose of God's kindness is to lead you and me into repentance and forgiveness and salvation. The imagery that they're trying to convey here is a soldier who is enduring the hardship of war with an eye on the eventual victory. God is looking at the pain and suffering in this world. He sees it. He experiences it with you. He is being patient with an eye to when the world will be redeemed. Some of you, you're, you're navigating horrible diagnosis and you're praying, God, make all things right. And God wants to make all things right. And the way he would make all things right is he would part the skies, he'd come back immediately. And to those who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, what an incredible day that would be. But to all of those who are, don't have an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ, what a horrible day that would be. God is patient with us, keeping his eye on the day when when he will come back. He is patient because if he comes back today, there's so many people that wouldn't be in relationship with him. Why does this matter to you and me? Because it means that God can be trusted because he is patient with us, giving us every opportunity to repent and be saved. Heaven throws parties when lost people repent and are saved and so should the church. May we here at the crossing never get tired of telling people about this patient Jesus and celebrating the baptisms that happen at our church. Every time you see one happen here, heaven is throwing a party and we should join the heavens. And the second thing that I think we should take away is that if you're gonna keep showing up here at the church, I'm hoping that our church will look a little bit like God. And what does that mean? That that means that there might be some people who attend our church who don't have it all together. And we're gonna be patient with people who don't have it all together. Don't think for a second 
that because some jacked up people come to our church that we don't have a position on sin. We do. We have a really clear position on sin. Don't. That's my sermon in a couple weeks. Just, just stop. Stop what? Sinning. And then we'll just, we'll just pray and go home. Like, now's a good moment. I almost can remember that one. Just stop. Quit. Don't. No. That's it. And the whole sermon. But hear me. There's some of you, you're going to show up for church and you're going to be like, hey, wasn't that guy drunk last night? Yeah, probably was. Hey, isn't that guy like cheat on his wife? Yeah, probably did. Isn't that the person who embezzled money? Probably so. Isn't that the kid who, you know, drove too fast? Yeah, maybe. Isn't that a person who used to sell drugs? Yeah. Isn't that person still selling drugs? Maybe. I don't know. I'm not buying. I'm not sure. Where would you want them? Where would you want them to go? I'll tell you what, that person's so drunk, they should never go to church. I, I don't know where, the church should show the same kindness to them that God showed to us because our kindness is what leads us to repentance. Let me, let me unpack this a little bit further, okay? I never get asked, what's our position on drunk driving? Even though drunk drivers come to our church. I never get asked that. Like, what are they gonna do? Yeah, we're huge fans here. We love it, right? Grab a Coors on your way out. Like, we don't, like, that's not how we operate. I never have people come up to me and go, hey, what's the church's position on divorce? Oh, we're huge fans. Because when we get to remarry them, we get to take the weekend away from our family and get 300 bucks to marry you. It's a huge cash cow for us. Like, that's, that's, no, that's not, no, that's not, no, that's not us. Listen, our church's position on sin is clear. But where else would you want a sinner than to give them an opportunity for us to be kind to them? So as Christians, we're gonna hold ourselves to a higher standard. And we're gonna show as much grace as we possibly can, as much patience, as much forbearance. So where they can find in Jesus what we found. We're moving to a time of decision. If you don't have an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you have come to a great place because our church is radically committed to that cause. And if you have questions about what it looks to be in an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ, in just a few moments, the people around you, they're gonna stand and sing. Some of them are gonna come up to the steps and pray. And that'll be a great opportunity for you to go right over there by the baptistry and talk to somebody about how to start that kind of relationship because that is the way to salvation. You are never gonna get things right on your own. You are never gonna get it all dialed in by yourself. You're gonna need him, his power, his work on your behalf, but we take hold of it through faith. And if you're going, but Clayton, I've messed up way too much. I want you to know there's nobody who's messed up more than Paul, than me, you name it. But God's grace was poured out on us. And I can promise you God's grace will be poured out on you. So if you're tired of doing life by yourself, if you're tired of doing it on your own power and your own strength, if you are tired of living your life under your direction, submitting to no one, I wanna encourage you. You can stop all of that today and you can turn your life over to Jesus. And for those of us who've had a relationship with Jesus Christ for a while, we tell you that it was the best decision that we ever made and our biggest regret is we didn't do it sooner. To the rest of you in here who are Christians, 
um, I think at this point, and I guess those of you online too, we have got to do a better job of representing Christ to a broken world. They are getting the wrong idea about Christians. Uh, because what we say and what we believe oftentimes is so far removed from how we actually behave. We have become judgmental. We have permission slips galore for ourselves and for our family and for our circumstances. But nothing but judgment for other people who are enduring incredible pain. I'm not saying be okay with the sin that you see in the world. I'm just asking you to take a radical look at your own sin first. Make serious changes there first. I'm not saying don't say something. I'm not saying don't have an opinion, a God-informed opinion. But I don't think our strategy is working. I don't think the way we are loving people is winning. It was God's kindness that led you and I to repentance. And I think it will be our kindness that will lead the people we're trying to reach into repentance. So here's what I'm asking you to do. If you care about people who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, maybe you'd wanna spend a little bit of time at the steps today just praying and again, God, help me to be patient with them and kind to them for the day where they will eventually repent and begin their relationship with you. Maybe some of you, you're kind of going, you know what, I've been on a high horse lately. I've been a little judgmental. I've been judgy. And you're going, you know what, I need to confess that to God. I need to own it. I need to own it in my own heart so that I can be the kind of Jesus follower that he desires and that he deserves. I think that's the kind of church we want to be. So let's do it. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the time we get to spend together. And God, there is so much ground I know that you could take in our hearts and our lives. And I pray that you would give us the courage to allow you to take it. That God, we would use this time of surrender to reshape us, redirect us, so that we can make the significant changes that need to be made. In your name I pray, amen.